Maimonides writes, Rambam says, that every Jew, by nature of his soul, really wants to do whatever it is that God asks of him. Only at times, his animal soul interferes. His Yetzirah gets in the way. And if we can just remove the Yetzirah, if we can just remove the interference, then the true nature of the Jew will reassert itself. And in his true nature, every Jew wants to do what God asks of us. The meaning behind that, aside from telling us something about the nature of a Jew, also tells us something about the nature of commandments. Every commandment is a request from God, something God needs us to do. And that which God needs is, of course, greater than any human quality, than any human trait, even the most noble of human traits. Because what God needs is godly, it's divine. And when a human being is wonderful and godly, it is in the image of God. It's a human being at his best, but not divine. This idea was brought across very strongly in the following story that comes from the diary of a chassid who was exiled by the communists to a very remote uh, area in Siberia. The chassid's name is Rabbi Fall. They called him Fuller. It was after the Bolshevik Revolution when the communists tried with all their might, considerable might, to discourage Jews from observing Judaism and particularly from teaching it to the younger generation. This Chassid Rebbe Fall was found guilty of perpetuating Judaism and he was exiled for many years during which he spent some years in prison in an actual cell, some years on a labor camp in a gulag, and some simply in exile. One of the exiles where he spent two years was in a village off the, rib off the river Ob, which is near the Arctic Ocean. And the name of the village was Che, a very primitive place that was populated by a very primitive people called the Samoyeds. Before the communists set up that village as an exile for, for their prisoners and introduced kerosene or kerosene lamps to the region, the people who lived there, the Samoyeds, had never seen fire because nothing grows there and so there is nothing to burn. For the longest time, the Samoyeds lived off the reindeer, 
Their tents, their huts were made of reindeer. Their clothing was made of reindeer. Their utensils were made of reindeer bones. And their staple was the, the meat of the reindeer. In fact, they also domesticated reindeer and hitched them to their sleds and traveled very quickly over the ice. But they ate the meat of the reindeer raw. They never cooked their meat, never cooked their food. When the prisoners arrived there, this was back in the 30s, when the prisoners arrived there, they were told to find their own lodging. This was not going to be a prison cell. This was going to be an exile. So there was an official building, a prison building, where the guards slept and where the offices were. But other than that, the prisoners had to find their own lodging. The Chassid, Rebbe wanted to put on his tefillin every morning. And so he tried to live in a cave. But even with a fire going, the cold was so incredible that he had to move into a hut and rent space in the hut of a Samoyed family. So they curtained off a little corner of the, of the hut for the, for the Hasid, and he paid for it with cigarettes that were sent to him from, from Moscow by his family. He got up very early every morning to put on tefillin before the family had had gotten up. One time, as he was wearing his tefillin, the Samoyed, his landlord, came into his little cubicle and caught him wearing his tefillin. The Chassid panicked. He didn't know what to do. Now he was afraid that Either he would be killed or the tefillin would be confiscated. But he had underestimated the primitiveness of the Samoyeds. The Samoyed looked at him for a while and then said, do all the people in Moscow do that? And he said, yes. And from then on, he was able to put on the tefillin without having to hide because the Samoyed had no idea that this was a religious practice and, and would not report him to the authorities. In fact, the Samoyeds were so primitive that their favorite drink was the blood of the, of the animals. So they wouldn't shoot the animal because then they would lose the blood. They would strangle the animal and save all the blood. They would sit around in a circle with a bowl in the center and uh, eat the raw meat and then help themselves to a drink from the bowl, which was the, the, the blood of the animal. Once in a while, they would have polar bear. Also, in the, in the more, uh, in the milder months, when they could break through the ice, they would sometimes catch fish. In fact, the Chassid writes in his diary that one time he saw them pull a nine-foot fish out of the water, which was quite awesome. Most of the fish, of course, were not kosher. <clears throat> and um, 
a reindeer is kosher, but first of all, he would have to slaughter it properly, and he didn't know how to do that. And even if he did, he would have to eat it raw, and he had no stomach for that. So he lived off the food that the prison provided, and that was a bowl of soup every day and a certain measure of bread. The soup he gave away because he wasn't sure it was kosher and lived off the bread and some vegetables wherever he was able to to scrape some together. During the time that the Hasid was there in the village of Cheh, the Samoyeds grew to respect him as a holy man. In fact, they would refer to him as the holy man because they saw that he was unwavering in his principles of kashrut and Shabbos and so on, that he wouldn't he wouldn't compromise at all and gave up a lot of creature comforts in order to be able to do that, aside from also putting himself in danger with the authorities. The first Pesach that he was in Che, he received a, a box of matzah from home and for the eight days of Pesach, when he couldn't even eat the little bit of bread that the prison provided, he lived completely, exclusively, off of the matzah for the eight days. The second year that uh, that he was in Che, a week before Pesach, the matzah had not arrived. And every day, the Samoyeds would go to the prison building and ask if the mail had come because they were worried about Rebrifal, knowing that if the matzah doesn't come, he will starve to death rather than eat bread on Pesach. But each day, the matzah didn't arrive. A messenger came down from the Arctic uh, port to the village of Che, asking that a sled be sent up to the port to bring a high-ranking official down to visit the, um, the village. This was a time of the year when the ice had begun to melt so that it was somewhat dangerous to travel over the river. And yet, on the other hand, of course, the ice was not melted sufficiently for boats to come through the river. And so they were really cut off and no mail, no mail was being delivered. Nobody wanted to take that trip over the thinning ice. But finally, one guy was chosen and told that he had to go. And so he's getting ready to go, and all the prisoners, there were 12 prisoners, all the prisoners ask him to bring the mail back from the port when he comes. And, of course, he refuses because he doesn't want to add weight to the sled. He arrives at the port and picks up the uh, the official, the high-ranking official, and he stops off at the post office to pick up his own mail. The guy in the post office says, I've got lots of mail, lots of packages. Take, a, take it with you. And again, he refused to add weight to the sled. But the post office man says to him, there's one box I think you should take. It looks very important. And he brings out this box that has dozens of, of seals and stamps and, and signatures and 
labels all over the surface of the box. And he says, this looks like it may be military information or military supplies, and they may send you back just to get this box. So you better take it. And he takes the box. It was the box of matzah that Rebbe Fall's wife had sent long before Purim. But the communists, knowing that it was matzah, knowing that matzah was needed for Pesach, maliciously sent the box in the wrong direction. He sent it down south instead of up north, planning for it to arrive in Che after Pesach. So each post office that it came to put another stamp on it or another signature or another label. And by the time it got up to Che, it looked like the most important piece of, of, of mail that the guy had ever seen in his life and in, impressed him enough to, to convince the guy to take it back with him. When he arrives back in Che, and he himself couldn't read, but when somebody there read the addressee, and it turns out to be addressed to Rebbe Fall. They open it up, and it's the matzah. Well, the Samoyeds were thrilled. And they pick up the chassid on their shoulders, and they do this little dance with him, and they make up this little song about the God of Israel protects his people, or something like that. As they're dancing, the chassid says to the one other Jew who was among the prisoners, a guy named Ginsburg, uh, who was arrested not because he was teaching his children Hebrew. He was arrested because he was, he was a ganeth. He was a criminal. And had no concern with matzah. But the chassid said to him, tomorrow night you'll come to my tent and we'll make a seder together. We'll share the matzah. But the Samoyeds were upset. <laughs> they objected. And they said, oh, no, you can't, you can't give this guy holy bread because he's no good. We saw him kill a bird and eat it. And they knew that this was against Jewish law. Being as fickle as they are, the chassid had to think quickly. So he says to Ginsburg, he says, I'll tell you what. I'll make a deal with you. If you promise me not to eat anything you're not allowed to eat, for the next eight days, then I'll share my matzah with you. And uh, the Samoids agreed, approved of that plan. That night, two Samoids slip into the tent where Ginsburg is sleeping, and they put a knife to his throat. And they said to him, we heard the holy man made an agreement with you that you won't eat anything you're not allowed to eat for the next eight days. We're going to be watching you. And if you eat anything you're not allowed to eat, we'll slit your throat. And of course, for them to kill somebody was, was as casual and as, as, as uh, easy as, uh, as killing their reindeer. So that year... Mr. Ginsburg, who may not have observed Pesach in the past, observed Pesach in the strictest, in the most 
in the most diligent fashion. He ate nothing but matzah. When the chassid was finally released and came back home to his family in Moscow, one of the first stories he told them was this little story. And he said to them, I learned something very important. There were years in my imprisonment when I sat in a cell and my wife had brought me matzah. And it was sitting right outside the cell in the office. <clears throat> and I asked that the, that the uh, guard give me the matzah, but he wouldn't. Against regulations, no food can be brought into the prison. I begged, I pleaded. They wouldn't listen. He says, I remember one Pesach night, I was sitting in my cell, and they wouldn't give me the matzah. And I pleaded with God that I should be allowed to have a piece of matzah. In fact, I took upon myself another year in prison if I could only have that matzah. And when they wouldn't give me the matzah and the night was was quickly passing, I sat and cried bitter tears because how can you go through a Pesach night without a piece of matzah? Then, in Che, poor Mr. Ginsburg did eat matzah, even though he didn't want to, even though he had no interest. He ate it mostly because he was afraid that somebody would kill him if he didn't. And yet, the night in Che, the Seder night, when Mr. Ginsburg ate a piece of matzah, something divine happened in the village of Che. A mitzvah was performed. A Jew ate matzah on Pesach. And in that prison cell somewhere else in Russia, when I was sitting there and crying, offering to spend another year in prison, for a piece of matzah. But there was no piece of matzah. Nothing divine happened. So although as, as human beings go, as people go, certainly someone who has the sensitivity, someone who has the devotion, someone who has that much neshama, that he cries for a piece of matzah, that's a very impressive human being. That's a very impressive Jew. But as impressive as it is, it is still human, not divine. On the other hand, Ginsburg was not impressive at all as a human being. And in spite of that, when he did a mitzvah and he ate the matzah on Pesach for all the wrong reasons, with all the wrong motivations, with all the wrong kavanah, but he did the mitzvah. Something divine happened in the village of Che. In his diary, this chassid also mentions a very impressive and also interesting incident. When he first moved into the hut with the Samoyed, came Friday night, and the Samoyed lit two kerosene lamps, one for his family and one for the chassid. Now, the, the law is, in, in, in Jewish law, 
that if a non-Jew performs a labor that is prohibited for the Jew on Shabbos, and he does it for a Jew, then the Jew is not allowed to benefit from that labor. So if uh, if the non-Jew lit the kerosene lamp for a Jew, then the Jew cannot benefit from that lamp. With an impressive presence of mind under the circumstances, when this Samoyed brought the lamp into the Chassid's cubicle, the Chassid said, if you don't mind, could I have the other lamp, which was the one that he had lit for his own family, which the Chassid may benefit from. And the man said, it's the same. They're just they're exactly alike. This is just as good. He said, well, but still, if you don't mind, I'd like to have the other one. And after arguing for a few minutes, the Samoyed gave in and gave him the other lamp. Well, the next Friday, the Samoyed lit the lamp that he had lit for his own family the Friday before. This time he lit that lamp for the Chassid, and it was already late Friday night. It was already in Shabbos. So now the Chassid couldn't <laughs> couldn't benefit from that lamp, so he says, if, can you give me the other lamp? And the guy says, no, no, this is the one you wanted last week. You preferred this one last week. He says, yeah, but this week I prefer the other one. The presence of mind to be conscious of every detail of the laws of Shabbos under those circumstances, when your life is in danger for any number of reasons, people died there simply from exposure. People died there at the hands of the guards. People died there at the hands of the Samoyeds. People died there of diseases. There were no hospitals. There were no doctors. Any number of reasons. The worry and the concern that they can at any moment extend the, uh, the sentence to another 10 years of, of, of labor camps or of exile not knowing whether he would ever see his family again, not knowing whether he would ever be free again. All of this, including the hunger, could make a man forget or careless or lenient in his commitment to mitzvahs. And yet in spite of all of that, not only that this man observed Shabbos in uh, in Che and wherever else he was during those 12 years of, of, of imprisonment. Not only did he maintain Shabbos as a special day, he paid attention to every detail, to every detail of the laws of Shabbos. So certainly as a human being, this is a very impressive human being. The communists could not break him communists could not even weaken him as much as they tried and they tried really hard so if you were looking for a shidduch, if you're looking to marry into a good family this is a good family these are good people these are impressive people and if we needed to uh, state it very strongly we might even say he was bigger than life 
a giant of the spirit, but human, but human. And his appreciation for the distinction between that which makes a human being great and that which is truly divine, the mitzvah itself, the divine will in the mitzvah, that is a very valuable lesson. Crying for a piece of matzah, having plenty of bitter herbs, but no matzah for your Seder plate, makes for an impressive human being. But the divine will, did God get the mitzvah? Was a mitzvah performed? Was was the night of Pesach the way God describes it, with matzah, with wine? It wasn't. So the divine didn't happen. But when Ginsburg and Che ate a piece of matzah, he fulfilled the mitzvah. Because when you eat matzah, the kavana, the intention, the feelings, the thoughts that you bring to the mitzvah don't affect the mitzvah itself. It can't become any holier or more godly if you have the right thoughts. And it doesn't become any less godly, any less divine if you have the wrong thoughts. If you have the wrong thoughts, the mitzvah is not really yours. The mitzvah hasn't had its effect on you. You haven't absorbed it properly, but the mitzvah remains a mitzvah. And so possibly the whole reason for that exile, the reason for their being there in Che, was that the village of Che hadn't experienced any divine mitzvahs since the beginning of creation. And it waited for the right moment, the right time, and the right people to come together and bring about the fulfillment of a mitzvah so that on that night in the 30s, on Pesach, something divine happened in that very strange village called Cheh.